She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. In search of... Other voices. This episode was written by Roz Carson. He was a writer for In Search Of and 60 Minutes. And that's it. That's all he did. Yeah. Although I watched a lot of 60 Minutes as a kid because my family would always watch it at seven o'clock on Sunday. So same. Although was it at seven o'clock? It was seven o'clock on Sunday, at least when I was a kid. I remember that (laughs) every week. Huh, that changes, hmm, that changes things. Hmm, We'll get to that. Okay. It was directed by H.G. Stark. Howard Graves Stark. Oh. Yeah, we get a Shadows and MCU mashup. Nice. Tony Stark's dad gets killed, and then his dad comes back as a ghost. Yeah. Directs. Oh, that's right, because Howard Stark is Tony's dad, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what his middle initial is, though, but yeah. Stark directs nine episodes of In Search Of, and that's all he's ever directed. Mm-hmm. And he has one writing credit for the 1965 documentary, which is called In Search of Man, but no relation to this series. Yeah, and I actually could not find it. I'm assuming since it's a documentary, it's about like the evolution of man, but I like Australopithecus and the yeah, I couldn't actually find and... any uh, description about it. There's like an IMDb listing that says In Search of Man. It says who wrote it. It says who directed it, and that's all you get. There's not even a picture. So, yeah. Huh. This series is hosted and narrated by Leonard Nimoy, Ooh. who is most known for being For Spock. his song about Bilbo Baggins, I think, right? Yeah. He also has for? a song just about aliens coming from space, which is pretty great. Oh. Uh, on his okay. album, Mr. Spock's Music from Outer Space or something. I forget. I have that CD somewhere. Oh, yeah. And also, of course, he directed the best movie ever made, which is Star Flash Trek Gordon. 4. Oh, wait. The Voyage oh. Home. <laughs> And he played Spock in that movie as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Whatever. I mean, you got you to do what you got to do. <laughs> so. And this episode originally aired on Sunday, April 17th, 1977. Yeah. And it was a syndicated series, technically called a first run syndicated series. Usually, think a syndicated series is like, you know, they run like on the big networks. And then if they get so many episodes and they do reruns, technically reruns on like local stations or other stations right like during the day or whatever so this was actually a first run syndicated series meaning like it was just sent out to stations and so depending on where you lived it might be on abc it might be on cbs it might be on nbc and back then that's pretty much all you had so you know maybe you had a local station or something like that but i remember watching it in the early evening and this is where i was when we talked about the 60 minutes i want to say it came on at 7 p.m because obviously Prime's time stuff starts at eight, right? The big mm-hmm. network stuff starts. And so like syndicated, first run syndication stuff would always have to be before 8 p.m. I also want to say the Muppet Show, which was also a first run syndication series, aired right after it at 7.30 p.m. And that time is actually confirmed for the Muppet Show by research. Okay. Like the Muppet Show did air at 7.30. Mm-hmm. And like, I know we watched the Muppet Show as a kid, so I'm not sure but i also think maybe my watching 60 minutes was after that that may have been when my mom got remarried and we watched 60 minutes a lot so maybe we didn't watch 60 minutes when i was a kid and it was later as a older child that we watched after muppet show and in search of were already gone that may be where that conflict is happening because 
it was confirmed that Muppet Show aired at 7.30. Yeah. I could not find confirmation about when In Search of aired. And I'm thinking it possibly could have aired at different times depending on where you live since it was syndicated. Yeah. So I don't know. 60 Minutes might have started airing at a different time, too, because by the time I was watching it, we're talking late 80s, early 90s. So, yeah. And also, I think that was like actually like a big because 60 Minutes was CBS. I don't know. But Muppet Show was confirmed at 730. And I swear that In Search of aired right before it, because I do have a distinct memory of being sent to bed early as a punishment, which meant that I was not able to watch the Muppet Show. Oh, yeah, and then being laying in bed listening to my family watching the Muppet Show, <laughs> and not being able to watch the Muppet Show and crying. Yeah. So anyway, Aww. yes, yes. So this series was preceded by three one-hour pilots, which were In Search of Ancient Astronauts in 1973, which was based on the book Chariots of the Gods? Question mark by Eric von Daniken, In Search of Ancient Mysteries, and The Outer Space Connection, which both aired in 1975. All three featured narration by Rod Serling, who was the initial choice to host this spinoff show, but Serling died before production started, and then Leonard Nimoy was selected to host. We were going to do these movies, or like pilots, one-hour episodes, whatever you Mm want to call them, but after subjecting ourselves to the first one, we decided we could just kind of mention them and then call it good enough and skip it. Yeah, yeah, basically I was like, because it was my idea, as we've talked about before, that all the Patreon stuff is for the most part me reliving my childhood. And then <laughs> Next Files podcast is basically Tori reliving her childhood. Essentially. Yeah. So, and I've got a couple things in the Patreon that I'm shoving in yeah. there. But yeah, for a yeah, lot of it, yeah. Stuff yeah. That yeah it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not totally one or the other. But I was like, there are pilots for this series too. I watched the show for sure, but I never seen the pilots. I was like, these are the pilots. And then I found them and we I watched the first one. And I was like, uh, Tori. I'm not sure that maybe we want to do these, but go ahead and watch it and see what you think. And she was like, yeah, no, no, we're not doing these. So No, it's so boring. And a lot of the information is so outdated anyway that it would just be like, I mean, a lot of this stuff in the series is probably going to be outdated as well. And we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah, because the show is like 50 years old almost. So, yeah. But the stuff yeah it was just so intimate it was kind of racist and i was like mm, we, we just don't need to <laughs> we do never this. deal with racism no i mean i don't if it's you know but it was also it was like that on top of everything else and i'm like there's not even that much to say about it except that this is wrong and yeah. it's not very good so we're just I'm gonna skip it yeah yep so if you want to watch them they're out there you can find them really easily we gave you the titles if you go to the in search of wiki It'll tell you what the titles are. Has links, I think, to them as well. So you're all good. Anyway, we get into the series. Let me start with narration by Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> My wife makes fun of the fact that he says his name different than pretty much everyone else says it. Like he never says Nimoy. He says like Nimoy, but everyone else says Nimoy. Uh-huh. So yeah. The sound can only be described as otherworldly, but the source is as commonplace as the ground we walk on the air we breathe. The sound comes from plants through sensitive electronic devices which translate fluctuations of electric energy. Some call it a voice. Whatever it is, it raises the astonishing possibility that plants can communicate. If plants can communicate, what are they saying? To whom or what are they talking? And how can we communicate with them? (gasps) 
And I apologize because Leonard Nimoy just sounds so much better saying that. He sounds better saying everything. I love his voice, but yeah. Yeah. He does do a little Shatner dramatic pausing when he's talking. Uh-huh. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. And then during his narration, obviously, we get like images of like the super cool botanical garden and plants, obviously, because we're talking about plants. And then we get the opening credits. Yay. And the opening credits have this really 70s educational music going on. Like it very much feels like something that was wheeled into your classroom on like a TV VCR set. And And we see the word extraterrestrials with a telescope image of a distant galaxy. And then the words magic and witchcraft. And there's people in white robes at a hinge, possibly Stonehenge. And then it says missing persons. And they show Amelia Earhart. Myths and monsters. And they show Loch Ness. Yeah. Lost civilizations, and they show the Moai of Easter Island and special phenomena, and they show crystal skulls. Ooh, crystal so, skulls. this is going to be a cool series. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, and then there's a weird break in the opening credits. Then we come back to more pictures of plants and Leonard Nimoy narrating. Yeah, and he says, A leaf is an amazing organism for utilizing the energy of the sun to produce life. Now we learn that a leaf may also have something remarkable to tell us. If only we listen. <gasps> the plants are talking. And then we jump like right back into the credits, like in mid music. And it's all in search of other voices. And then we get a narration disclaimer, which is not Leonard Nimoy. I actually think it's Robert L. Long, who is a series producer from 77 to 78. He does have narration credit on IMDb for the show. So I think it's actually him speaking because there's no one else that narrates in the show, honestly. So anyway, the disclaimer is this series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones to the mysteries we will examine. And then and then we get like some more credits and then the show starts. Yay. Yay. And so my hot take for the show after watching it is I am hesitant to say this. I love this show. I watch the show. This is what I grew up on. This is where my love of all this kind of stuff comes from. I will probably be proved wrong before this season is over, but I think they picked the weirdest fucking topic to start the series off. Honestly, the first series we see in the credits, we got extraterrestrials, magic and witchcraft and missing persons and myths and monsters, lost civilization, special phenomena. And then we see like other voices and you're like, sweet ghosts, maybe interdimensional beings. Hell yeah. And then we open and the first thing we see is some dude on a blanket in the backyard teaching kids to fill the ores of fucking houseplants. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? Plants. I mean, I'm being facetious. We knew it was going to be plants because we got the opening narration. But mm-hmm. if you missed that opening narration and you came in. And you saw in search of monsters and all this kind of cool shit. And then other voices, you'd be like, woo. And then it's just some dude in the backyard with a bunch of kids. And you're like, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's such a weird first topic because it does feel like kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel a little. Mm-hmm. But like, this is what they're opening with. Yeah. A brand new show. First episode. <laughs> trying to sell it to people. Yeah. I'm going to guess yeah. that they didn't like do this with like the order of the show in mind as much as like they just produce these segments and then probably put them in an order. But yeah, it seems like a weird one to choose for the first episode. Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. 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 My little joke of in search of something else to watch. 
(laughs) So the episode breaks down as follows. Like Nick said, we open with a guy on a blanket and he's showing little kids like they've all got leaves in their hands and they're holding their hand over the leaf. And this is Marcel Vogel and he's a research chemist and he wants to find out if plants feel. But also he wants you to feel the aura of the plant by putting your hand over it. Feeling its energy, I guess. Yeah, we actually get very little from Vogel, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And then Nimoy is kind of like, are plants listening? And then they talk a little bit about how everyone has house plants now because everything is depressing and concrete. <laughs> and possibly this is a throwback to our ancient whatever desire to have flora around. And they show a nursery and they talk about how plants are like big business because it's so trendy right now to have a garden or to have houseplants and things like that. Mm. My grandparents actually owned and operated a nursery in Terra Linda, California when I was a kid, which is outside of San Francisco. And so I spent a lot of time as a kid hanging out in the nursery, like running around the greenhouse and climbing the big stacks of soil bags. Yeah, you thought those were soil bags. Those were bags of something (laughs) else. (laughs) Tori, why do you smell? Woo. No, Tori, most Tori, of them Tori. were soil. There was fertilizer <laughs> too, but and it's all in plastic anyway. But yeah, we spent a lot of time there as a kid. So I kind of grew up in a nursery. I do not have a green thumb though. I am, as Leonard Nimoy would say, a brown thumb. I a can brown thumb. <laughs> which, woo, man, that's a hmm. harsh. I know they talk about that too. Like that can go another way. <laughs> you people with green thumbs have some kind of special magic. I don't know. Anyway. That plants pick up on. Yeah. 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 And then we're at the Denver Botanical Garden, which looks very pretty. It's got it looks a lot of super plants. sweet. It, it looks like it would be a sci-fi like backdrop because it's kind of like a big like greenhouse dome, like a cross between like Thunderdome and a biosphere. It's pretty sweet looking. And then we meet Dorothy Retallick, who wants to see if there's a connection between music and plants, like if plants react to music or hear music or if it affects their growth in any way. Mm-hmm. And she always felt an affinity with plants and harsh music always bothered her. So she wanted to find out if it would also bother plants. And her experiments showed that plants are not a fan of rock music. Yeah. Although possibly those are just her plants. I don't know. <laughs> She did do some science. Oh, yeah. But we'll talk more about her later. Yeah. Yeah. And then we meet Kendall Johnson, who does curly in photography, which is electric photography. Yeah. Which is actually just electricity being conducted through something. It's, it's what you think of as aura photography, basically. Mm-hmm. But really, you're just photographing electricity. You're not photographing auras anyway. So. Mm-hmm. And Johnson has a theory that energy affects development. Yeah, Johnson is. So he tries to photograph. He is super laid back. You're like, you have partaken of the 60s and 70s a lot, <laughs> Kendall. He is super laid back. He seems like he'd be cool to hang out with, but he is just super laid back. Yeah. He has yeah, a really bad comb over, though. But yeah. <laughs> He seems like, yeah, but he's a chill dude. He just hangs around. No, he's chill. He seems like he'd be a great dude to hang out with. I mean, he (laughs) seems like he'd be fun just as an interesting person, but he is super chill. He has that super chill voice. Like, like he's Bob Ross almost. It's kind of, yeah. Mm, Yeah. Okay. I can see that. And then we asked the question, can plants also speak? If so, can we decipher their voice? Yeah. Because we've asked if they could feel. We've asked if they can hear. 
can they speak? <gasps> and this is my favorite segment of the show because this is it's actually the biggest segment of the show. It is too. the biggest segment, and it's it's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. Everything it's, it's about bonkers. it is absurd. It is ridiculous. It's like this would be the part that you would cut out of the show, and it is the biggest segment it's of the, the show. Biggest part. So we meet Cleve Baxter, and he connects plants to galvanic response detectors. And this is because he's trying to measure their primary perception. So he like connects them to what is sort of like a lie detector needle, you know, like it one is of those a lie detector. Measure- yeah. yeah, basically. Yeah. And at first it doesn't work. And no, then he has to like recalibrate the equipment. And then like, I don't know what your note about K Hoffman is, but I'll let you do that. Well, part. cause they have like the staff, the, the post-production supervisor for the show is like sitting with Cleve and uh-huh. she's like watching him. And then so he's like, oh, well, I've done this experiment so many times that maybe I'm not giving enough, you know, stuff for the plants to pick up on the empathy action. Because that's, that's the thing with like they speak, they can pick up on your empathy. And so they're saying like, no, don't do that. That's, you know, that kind of business. Because he's like cutting his hand. He's cutting himself. We should probably explain what he's yes. doing. He's like cutting his hand yes. so that, to see if the plants react to his pain. So yeah. he, he has them connected to a lie detector and then he like cuts himself. And they so the don't plants are do- watching as he cuts himself. <laughs> And they don't do anything. And so, and so but he's, yeah, but he's done this experiment so many times that maybe they're just not picking, you know, it doesn't bother him as much because he just casually like cuts himself and then puts some iodine on it. So he's like, hey, Kay, come here. <laughs> cuts her. And she has this look of like, this is not my job description. <laughs> but he cuts her with a scalpel and then he puts iodine on it. And this time, because he also has had to recalibrate the machine, we see him spinning the dials and stuff. Uh-huh. And this time, we do get something on the chart but then when he goes over the chart it makes no sense how he explains it. he basically explained it so that he can explain why there's marked where there are marks and not where there's marks where there should be marks and so yeah it's kind of no and then if you thought that wasn't just <laughs> yes. wacky enough <laughs> it gets better it gets better because he decides that he also wants to test yogurt because yogurt has live and active cultures Does anyone who eats yogurt knows not all yogurt a lot of yogurt and so he like puts oh. the the detector thing into yogurt and tries to get a response from the yogurt. And I'm just guess, sitting there going, but guess Science? what? It doesn't work the first time. He has to recalibrate and do it again. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, man, science was amazing in the 70s. You could get a grant to do anything. Like he's oh. just reading feed outs from yogurt and plants oh. attached to a machine. And I'm just like, I bet he got paid like tons of money he probably owned like a three-bedroom house and a nice car because of oh we will go readings. in we will go into all of these people that we talk to anyway in just a moment yeah yeah so the part is just, it's it's wild and then yeah. we get to the end and the last part is our plants responsible for esp like <gasps> are we picking up on their energy are they trading energy you know that kind of yeah So Leonard Nimoy kind of gives us a clue on how plants might be responsible for ESP. And this is how. If you've ever awakened in the night with knowledge that something has happened to someone you love and found out you were right, you might have wondered who or what was the messenger. One intriguing possibility is that plants carried the message. 
<gasps> Apparently plants feel and hear and speak to each other. Can they talk to us? They seem to be able to hear and understand us. For the time being, however, we must listen to them through our machines. One day, those machines may be unnecessary. And then boom, and credits. Yeah, and so that's that's yeah. the whole episode. That is that is what we get for other voices. Yeah, which is interesting because this this last bit about the plants and ESP is actually a lot of what Vogel was into, and uh-huh. yet we don't go into that at all with him. Basically, he's just like he's hanging out with the kids, going like, "Fill the ore." And there's one kid who's totally into it, and it's like they're talking, <laughs> and like there's this other girl and this boy. They're like, "Oh." One of them yawns in the middle. It's hilarious. But anyway, they're probably yeah. like, "Is it snack time yet? Can I <laughs> yeah. have my like?" Fruit One kid roll is up? totally into it. I think this is probably a kid who's maybe been on TV more than once. He's totally into it. So yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but yeah, that's it. So let's talk a little bit more about our guests that we had on in search of. So Marcel Joseph Vogel was born on April fourteenth, nineteen seventeen, and he passed away on February 12th, 1991. He was a research scientist working at the IBM San Jose Research Center. He worked there for 27 years. Wow. He is sometimes referred to as Dr. Vogel, but that title was an honorary degree and technically never like earned a PhD. But he did work for IBM for 27 years. Later in his career, however, he became more interested in like some debatable fields of study, including the healing power of crystals and plant communication. So in 1945, He started Vogel Luminescence in San Francisco, and for the next decade, the firm produced a variety of new products, which included fluorescent crayons, tags for insecticides, a blacklight inspection kit that traced rodents by their urine, so some CSI shit. And then the company was also responsible for the psychedelic colors popular in New Age posters. So basically, like all your blacklight posters that you see in that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. He developed that crap. So like oh, he was responsible cool. for all that stuff. And then that was sold to Ultraviolet Products in 1957. And then he joined IBM at that time as a full-time research scientist. He received 32 patents for his inventions during his tenure at IBM, including one for the magnetic coating on 24-inch hard disk drive systems. And then his areas of expertise outside of luminescence were phosphor technology, again, glowy shit, magnetics, and then liquid crystal displays. His work on liquid crystal displays actually led to basically every LC display ever made. Oh, wow. So we owe this guy a lot. Yeah. So like his research is what was responsible for that. So he wasn't hurting for money, obviously. Mm -hmm. So he retired from IBM in 1984. And when he retired, both IBM and Stanford University donated equipment to his new company, Psychic Research Incorporated. Oh, nice. Boom. Yes. He said that he could duplicate the Baxter effect. And we're going to get, so we're talking about Cleve Baxter. We're going to get to him in a little bit using plants as transducers for bioenergetic fields from the human mind. So basically the whole ESP thing, like the plants pick up on your thoughts, mm-hmm. transmit them through like the plant network and then send them to where they need to go. Right. So then you, and then you get them. So I'm thinking, Tori, we need to record this episode. But instead of just pulling out messenger and typing Tori, Hey, we need to record this episode. I just think it. And then the plants 
all the way from Portland <laughs> to Seattle, and then send it to Tori, and boom, but we're done. And when then we're I have the my episode. windows closed in a HEPA filter. Would that prevent the plant particles no, from getting to me? No, because he also believed <laughs> that the inverse square law does not apply to thought. Oh. So the fact that a signal gets distributed and therefore gets decreased over time, right? Because it spreads out. Yeah. And so like the receiver gets a lower version because it's not getting the whole signal because the signal spread out. He believed that doesn't apply to thought. Okay. So it's your thoughts are just thoughts are everywhere. Boom. You huh. get it. So yeah. He also, I did not know this. Oh, I didn't know a lot of shit, but he examined the metal sample, which was allegedly given to Billy Meyer by extraterrestrials in Switzerland. Oh. And he did like spectrometry on it and all that kind of stuff. And he marveled at his unusual properties, claiming that it contained the element thulium. However, as tends to happen in these cases, the metal sample was lost after Vogel's analysis and so could never be corroborated. Oh, dear. See, it's not just Mulder and Scully who lose evidence. No. And there's actually a video of him discussing all this that I found on YouTube. Nice. So you can actually link to that video if you want to watch it. Kind of interesting. Anyway, Grover Cleveland Cleve Baxter Jr. was born February 27th, 1924 and died on June 24th, 2013. He was an interrogation specialist for the Central Intelligence Agency. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then is best known apparently for experimenting with plants using a polygraph instrument in the 1960s, which led to his theory of primary perception, where he claimed that plants can feel pain and have extrasensory perception slash ESP, right? Mm -hmm. But he did begin his career as an interrogation specialist with the CIA. And then he went on to become the chairman of the Research and Instrument Committee of the Academy for Scientific Interrogation before beginning his experiments on plants. So he wasn't wow. just like an interrogator. He was like the interrogator. Mm. They do mention that he did work for law enforcement and the Central Intelligence Agency. He also founded the Baxter School of Lie Detection in 1959 in New York City. The school was actually in San Diego at the time of this episode. And that school basically did what you think it does. It instructed law enforcement on the use of the polygraph. Okay. The Baxter School of Lie Detection is still a thing. You can sign up for classes on it right now. They're doing Zoom classes because COVID. They also have in-person classes, although it's now owned and operated by Limestone Technologies and apparently has moved its school to Kingston, Ontario in Canada. So if you want in-person classes, you got to go to Canada. Okay. It always seems to have just had one school. It started in New York, then it moved to San Diego, and then now it's in Ontario. But it always just seemed to have like, we have one location. I'm not, it seemed like you could have totally like branched out that and like, made some bank but apparently just always one school they would just send people there to go to the school to learn how to use lie detectors that's funny his work also caught the attention of the church of scientology l ron hubbard founder of the church of scientology officially used the polygraph as an e-meter for a time before he mm -hmm. developed an actual e-meter which is basically just a lie detector and then he l ron hubbard also published plant communication experiments on tomato plants okay you're wondering yeah, Hildron Hubbard is interesting. Oh my God. He's interesting and also super evil, but that's okay. Well, yeah, that too. Yeah. I mean, evil people can be interesting. So, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And in the season four, episode 18, episode of Mythbusters, which is also known as episode 61 or episode 72, depending on how you count it, because Mythbusters really didn't do seasons. They kind of just had shows and would take breaks and come back and have shows. So, if mm -hmm. you count the specials, if you don't count the specials, anyway, the episode Deadly Straw. The secondary topic was whether primary perception worked. 
And of course, it didn't. Mm-hmm. That was the Not time surprised. when we had the Junior Mythbusters, and so that was one of their experiments, right? Yeah, yeah. I love them all. Yeah. I was yeah. not, well, we'll get into that in a minute. Dorothy L. Retallick published The Sound of Music and Plant in 1973, which detailed her experiments at the Colorado Women's College in Denver, Colorado. So she did actually do real science. I'm not even going to say she tried to do a real science. She did the best science that they could do at the time. They used real, you know, they had isolations and all that kind of stuff and tried mm-hmm. to do control groups and keep everything the same except for the one thing they're testing for. And, you know, she got her results and she published them. The 23rd episode of Miss Busters, or the 26th, if you count the specials, Exploding House tested, will talking to plants help them grow? And in this one, they did seven greenhouses. And one, they played death metal music. And one, they played classical music. And then, so Carrie and Scotty, I was not a fan of Carrie. My wife and I love Scotty. Scotty only stuck around for the first season. She then left, but Scotty was our favorite. Anyway, each of them recorded a positive speech to play and then negative speech, like yelling at them. And that way it also wouldn't be like, you know, did the plants prefer one person's voice or not? So they each recorded one of both positive and negative. So we had four of those. So like a a carry positive and a carry negative, Mm -hmm. a Scotty positive and a Scotty negative. And then we had a control that had no music whatsoever right and they played it over speakers so that like just exhaling while you were talking wouldn't be helping because obviously co2 is what plants breathe and if you're speaking you're exhaling co2 so would that make a difference death metal fared the best nice it beat classical music they both beat speech which didn't seem to make a difference whether it was positive or negative carrie or scotty they pretty much were all just across the board no real discernible difference and the control group fared the worst no, oh, interesting. Like the sound does help apparently, but it's not necessarily what it is. There is a theory that because the way plants work with, you know, all their stuff that like sound waves can help because like, I mean, plants exist in nature. There's like the song of birds, there's, you know, blowing of the wind, all that kind of stuff. So just the actual like additional sound may help. And so okay. it might depend on the frequency on like the beats per minute, all that kind of stuff, right? So mm-hmm. there's thoughts that like that might be what's happening, but it's not like I love death metal or I hate, you know, <laughs> uh, Led Zeppelin. You don't know. Maybe those so. plants are super into death metal. Possibly. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. And then Kendall Johnson, he actually has a degree in economics, which he got from Michigan State University, and he has a Juris Doctor from the University of Miami. So he could have become a lawyer if he wanted to. He actually got a law degree. He served in the Korean War in the Army Medical Corps. And then he basically worked in insurance in Southern California after that. And then in 1971, he was taking an extension course at the UCLA extension program. And he learned about the topic of Carillion photography. And after hearing about it, he was super excited about it. And he apparently assembled the first apparatus in the United States to make Carillion images with just a spark. Doing okay. my research, it seems like that photography was usually done by just like applying current to something okay. and then taking the photos, but it had to be like the current was constantly flowing through it again because the like the photo you're taking is of the electricity being conducted through whatever right. it's going through, right? But he apparently was able to do it like you just basically like zap it, like you know, like you, you know, scuff your feet and like dink, and then you could take a photo at that moment. Because basically what you do is you like lay the plant on a photographic plate and then you apply electricity. In his case, now he learned how to do it with a spark instead of just connecting wires to it and like, 
and then it makes an imprint on the photographic plate. Anyway, this led to research at UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute. Okay. And then in 1975, he wrote The Living Aura, Radiation Photography, and The Curlian Effect. Nice. Yeah. He died on November 9th in 2011, the age of 83 in Santa Fe, New Mexico. His work is responsible for just about any aura photograph you have ever seen in your life. Mm. They're doing aura photographs or spiritual energy or anything. Basically, what he did is why you see those photos. Okay. And it's responsible for at least one portion of the opening credits of the X-Files because nice. of that. The very end where we get the little glowy hand kind of thing. So, yep. Very cool. Well, that was None. a lot of deep dives on a lot of scientists. I, you know how I love doing this kind of stuff. So, yeah. I love checking people out. So Nice. Interesting stuff. The whole CIA thing was crazy. That was yeah. Crazy. That is so funny that he's like a CIA guy and like yeah. Now he makes yogurt talk. Yeah, well, not anymore because <laughs> he's dead. But he tried. <laughs> he yeah, tried. But, but yeah, both Vogel and Baxter, like they have like real credentials, right? I mean, like I mean, Baxter's are like with the CIA and shit. But like they have real credentials and actually did stuff. But then also they just went crazy pants later. It's kind of funny. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that is i don't know i mean you used to be able to like have a career make decent money just at like one job and then be able to like go off and do other stuff because you <laughs> you could buy a mm -hmm. house and you could have you know life you didn't need to be moving from job to job trying to support your cost yeah. of living well, i mean like vogel obviously was making good money with his job oh for and sure then he had yeah. several patents and he started a with a company yeah fuck and ton like, of money right yeah. just based on the stuff he worked on and then Baxter basically created lie detectors and started a school to teach people how to use them. Yeah, so, I mean, they definitely had very yeah. incredible careers. I just yeah. sometimes it but boggles also, my mind how much the know, world has changed. That allowed them to then go crazy pants. And do uh, fun stuff. See? Yeah. The world is great if you're just rich. <laughs> it is, honestly, yeah. yeah. You can buy Skinwalker Ranch or you can go to space or you can, yeah. Do whatever you want. Yeah. So this episode reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, which is a book about an angel and a demon who try to avert the apocalypse because they don't want the world to end. So it's pretty they good. They like the world and they want to keep it. They, they want to keep living in it. I mean, there are no sushi restaurants in heaven. So, you oh, know. Oh, good to know. Gotta, good to know. Got to stick around if you want sushi, which to be fair, I always do. Although, what does um, that say about sushi? I know. The list of uh, there's like one point when Crowley and Azaraphale, Azaraphale's the angel and Crowley's the demon. And so he's trying to talk him into helping avert the apocalypse because the apocalypse is the great ineffable plan, right? So like he should be for it because it's what the plan yeah, is. It's God's plan, yeah. And Crowley's like trying to talk him out of it. And that's when he mentions, there's, well, there's no sushi restaurants in heaven. So mm. you might want to think about that for a minute. Although how would a demon know there's no sushi restaurants in heaven? Well, demons are just fallen he angels. Hasn't been there. Oh, well, maybe they got some now. Maybe sushi wasn't a thing. I mean, to be fair, yeah, I don't think Crowley or Aziraphale have been back in a very long time. So I don't know. But anyway, there's this passage in the book where it's talking about just like different things in the lives of everyone. And this is about Crowley and his plants, which is what this episode made me think of. Crowley had heard about talking to plants in the early 70s on Radio 4 and thought it was an <laughs> excellent idea. Although talking is perhaps the wrong word for what Crowley did. What he did was put the fear of God into them. Oh. More precisely, 
the fear of Crowley. In addition to which, every couple of months, Crowley would pick out a plant that was growing too slowly or succumbing to leaf wilt or browning or just didn't look quite as good as the others. And he would carry it around to all the other plants. Say goodbye to your friend, he'd say to them. He just couldn't cut it. Then he would leave the flat with the offending plant and return an hour or so later with a large empty flower pot, which he would leave somewhere conspicuously around the flat. The plants were the most luxurious, verdant, and beautiful in London, and also the most terrified. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, that's one of the things that I always think of when I think of talking to plants is Crowley like yelling and scaring his plants and then threatening them. Yeah. Hmm. But it works for yeah, him. So. I wonder if Radio 4 was talking about the book, The Secret Life of Plants, which was published in 1973 by Christopher Bird and Peter Tompkins and was not mentioned in this episode. Doing some research, it does seem to be the book that comes up the most when you're looking at whole like plant communication stuff. Mm -hmm. The book itself is the account of the physical, emotional, and spiritual relations between plants and man. And it actually is the book that popularized the idea of plant communication. It oh, basically nice. cited a bunch of scientific studies that suggested not only does music help plants grow, but that they have a level of consciousness and can intelligently respond to people. Retalic's book, The Sound of Music and Plants, was published the same year. I don't know the actual date, so I don't know if they referenced her book in their book or if it came out like at a time when it, they hadn't seen it yet or you know if her book came out first. I have no idea. But it does seem to have overshadowed her book, at least when you're doing research on the internet, because there's not a lot you could find about her book or her in general okay. on the internet. That, and that may account for why there's not a lot to find. Also, probably, I'm going to guess there's probably some misogyny in there because she's a woman. Mm -hmm. She was an older woman. She went back to school, like after all her children and grown, all kind of stuff. She's like, she was an older lady. Her book does have a narrower focus. It only talks about the whole music and plant stuff. And then also she was kind of judgy. Like in the 1970s, she was like, Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix aren't real music. And so <laughs> that probably was not a popular thing to be saying in the communities that would be accepting of plants have feelings, dude. Yeah. So, I'm guessing. Maybe. Definitely not. I yeah. know if you're only into like classical music and everything else doesn't count, the people that are going to be reading books about plants feeling, are, like you said, are not going to be the kind of people who are going to be like, oh. Yeah. Jazz apparently was also fine with her plants as well. There were some experience in 1961 by an Indian scientist who did the same stuff. He found that like raga music, plants love that kind of stuff. Okay. So it seems almost like plants might like the music that people like. And yeah, there might be some things that we're not maybe controlling for in those experiments, possibly. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. So, but that's in search of other voices again, man. First yeah, it's episode. a weird, weird opening topic. And then the title, just... you're like, oh, other voices. Whoa, what is this going to plant? Fucking plant. <laughs> get it. All right, fine. Plants do communicate with each other, obviously. We know. Yeah. That. Yes. You know, we have the whole like underground, like fungal networks and all that kind of stuff. We're learning all kinds of stuff about that all the time. Whether we're going to have triffids at some point walking around chit chatting with us or trying to kill us or whatever, I don't know. But. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed yeah. this episode, and we hope the next episode of In Search of is a little more exciting. 
Yeah. I mean, this one wasn't okay. This episode was boring, but I really enjoyed doing the research on this episode. I have to say, I was thinking <laughs> this was going to be a short episode. I was like, plants, seriously, plants. And then I started delving into people and was like, oh my God. So, yeah. There's yeah. some good stuff in there for sure. So, yeah. All righty. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz, and the truth is what we make of it by the agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Tell a friend. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next Wednesday as we go in search of strange visitors. And try to figure out if the The truth truth is is still out out there. there. Okay. <laughs> oh dear.